My name is Andy Reid. I'm with the Evangelical Development Ministry from Dallas, Texas. And we serve ministries in the areas of management, development, discipleship, primarily helping organizations and individuals in resource development. And the session is how to raise resources for life and ministry. So as we begin, would you bow your head in a word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for all that you've been teaching us these days, for the opportunity we have to listen to your spirit and respond accordingly. Father, we thank you for your love and watch care over us, and we pray that you'd be with us and guide us and direct us this session, confirming those things that are your principles in our hearts and minds. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, let me just start off with, uh, I'm sorry this is a little blurry, but just to kind of give you an idea, this is from a source called Giving USA, and individuals gave 75% of all the funds that were given, which was $227.41 billion. Corporations gave 4%, foundations gave 13%, and bequests gave 8%. So bequests really come from individuals. So if you add those two together, 83% of all the money that's given come from individuals. Also, if you look at where money goes when it's given, uh, the exciting thing about being involved in medical missions is that if you take the top four categories, religion, education, human services, and health, that accounts for over 50%, almost 60%, of all the funds that are given, and then if you add in public benefit, that's another 7%. So the good news is, uh, to put it in a, in a term with, in athletics, uh, this is kind of the sweet spot in terms of raising, raising funds. Okay? We want to begin by looking at three kinds of thinking. The first is great commission thinking, second is faith thinking, and the third is principle thinking. First of all, in terms of Great Commission thinking, ministry partnership development is a ministry. That's the first thing to understand, that it's not something you do to have a ministry, but rather it is part of the ministry. It needs to be factored in as part of the ministry if you're going to be successful. It's a part of getting people involved in the Great Commission. In terms of the faith thinking, we have to believe God. Is God trustworthy? Is he going to follow through and do what his word says he will? And obviously the answer to that is yes, but we need to believe him. Uh, Not like the guy who was up fixing some things on the roof one day and was going across the roof and lost his footing and started to roll off the roof and caught himself on the rain gutter just as he was about ready to fall. And he cried out and said, is there anybody up there that can help me? And this voice came and said, yes, my son, have faith and let go. Guy thought there for a minute and said, is there anybody else up there that can help me? (laughs) Secondly, we have to do our work as unto the Lord. If we understand that ministry partnership development is a ministry, then we have to understand that when we're conducting our ministry partnership development activities, we're actually doing the work, the ministry that God has called us to, and we need to do it as if we were doing it for him, because in fact we are, we're being his ambassadors. And then thirdly, in terms of principle thinking, there's two kinds of of things that we tend to operate our lives by. One is techniques, and that's the way we tend to live our lives. And the second is principles, which really is the basis for success. 
one is not right and one is not wrong, we'll do both of those, and we'll talk about both of those today. But if you do techniques that are not based on biblical principles, you may be successful in the short run, but in the long term, you will not be successful. If we look at uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, uh, 19, uh, 10 to 19, we see that one of the things that Paul said was that the Philippians did well to share with him. They were supporting him and the ministry that God had called him to. The Philippians sent a gift more than once for his needs, this passage tells us. And then Paul also wrote about the motivation in these verses, and he said, not that I seek the gift itself, but what I seek is for the profit that accrues to your account through your giving, through your faithfulness to the Lord. And so Paul also wrote about his commitment, or contentment. He received everything in full and had an abundance. Now, it doesn't necessarily maybe say that all of his wants were fulfilled, but it does say all of his needs were fulfilled, and he had an abundance in terms of meeting his needs. So those are some of the promises that we have And Paul went on to say, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Not some, not a portion, but the scriptures say, God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, there are five principles for raising funds. First of all is to realize that God owns it all. You know, we talk about my car, my house, my checking account, my credit card. But in reality, everything that we have is God's, and we're just merely stewards of what he's entrusted to us. So once we understand that God owns it all, and we're contacting people about his resources and their stewardship, it's a lot easier to talk with people about where they're going to invest their funds. Secondly, Christians are givers. So it's not like we're going to be going to someone who does not have a concept of giving. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Thirdly, God wants me to ask. That's the number one reason why people give, because someone asked them to give. We should not shy away from asking. I was with someone about two weeks ago, and uh, he said, you know, Andy, would you please do the ask? Well, you know, I said, I'd be happy to, but why don't you? Well, I, I don't like to ask. And so what that told me was there was an a lack of understanding in terms of the scriptures, in terms of God's economy, in that if I ask, I'm not taking it away from someone else because God's resources are limitless. So we need to have to understand that God wants us to ask. Fourthly, what I sow, I will reap. What I mean here is that if you're not investing in the people that are going to become your ministry partners, those who will be supplying resources, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you invest bountifully, you'll reap bountifully because people like to respond to people who are interested in them and want to be a part of what God is doing in the ministry. And then fifthly, our Father's abundant supply. Like I just said before, it's not that if someone gives to you, they're taking away from someone else because God's has an abundant supply of everything that we need. Some other seats up here, if you want to sit down over here. We have to realize that God's resources have no limits on his supply. 
God's economy, he owns it all, he has it all, and he gives it to us as stewards to be managers of it for him. Now, the first key in successful ministry partnership development is that to realize that people have a need to give. Uh, how many of you have heard of Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol? Everybody? Okay. Uh, there's three main characters. There's Scrooge, Tiny Tim, and Bob Cratchit. Now, who was the abnormal person in that story? Scrooge. Why? He was stingy. had no capacity to give. And so, for the most part, we realize we're going to be going to normal people. And so, when you go to those people, they have a need to give. If we're created in the image of Christ, in God's image, God is a giving God, right? He gave his son. So, we're going to be going to visit people who are Christians who have that same giving spirit. So, people have a need to give. Besides that, if I were to say to you, you know, your, your, your desire to probably ask people is probably about that much. So if anybody has more than that, they have a greater capacity to give than you have a need to ask. As I mentioned, you know, we're created in God's image. And God is the giving God. Now, there's ten reasons why people give. There's more, but these are the, the primary ones that I just want to touch on briefly today in the short time that we have together. First of all, is people give because they want to be a partner in something worthwhile. In other words, they get some sense of satisfaction in terms of self-worth by being a partner in something that is accomplishing a worthwhile purpose. So they want to be a partner in that. And the way you do that is recognize that a partnership is not 50-50. A partnership is 100-100. So you give as much as, as they give. Secondly, people want to participate vicariously. I've talked to many, many people who say one of the main reasons why they give is because they can't go, but they can help other people who can go. So, and they, they participate vicariously through the giving that they do. Another reason is that people want to, to accomplish a specific purpose. Uh, maybe there's a need to help Syrian refugees that are coming out of Syria into Lebanon, and there are people who grew up and have family in the Middle East, maybe even from Syria, and they want to help those people who are coming out who need medical care, food, clothing, things like that. So they, they're going to give to accomplish a specific purpose. Others may give for uh, general medical welfare, human welfare. Others for missions, for evangelism. But they give to, to accomplish a specific purpose that's important to them. Thirdly, they give to maintain a sense of self-worth. In other words, they want to feel good about themselves. They see themselves as a generous giver. And they see as they give that they have a sense of self-worth in terms of participating in something that's important, not only to them but to others in the world. Five, they give because they love Christ. And it's a way for them to say thank you to him for what he has done for them in a, in a tangible way. Six, to meet a specific need. Maybe you have a particular need. A friend of mine in, in South Africa, he's going to have knee surgery 
Well, he has a specific need to have his knee surgically repaired. And there are people that have given to cover the costs of that so he can go back and continue in ministry. So they give to meet a specific need. Uh, They receive a blessing when they give. Now, this is kind of a tricky one because some people will continue to give no matter how badly you treat them. Now, I'm not suggesting you treat them badly, but they're not giving because of what you give to them, but rather the blessing that they receive from their giving. Number eight, they give for financial security reasons. And there's two sides of of a coin here. One is they give because they feel like they're honoring God with their gifts. And as they honor God with their gifts, God will indeed bless them. They're not giving to get, but there's a biblical principle that if you give, God will replenish that giving. On the other side of that coin, though, is some people give out of fear. And they're afraid if they don't give, God will take things away from them or quit giving to them. All right? And then number nine, they just have that intrinsic need to give. If you've ever met somebody like that, they're not looking for reasons to give. They're just looking for opportunities to give because it's something that is built into their their DNA. And then number ten, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, they give because they were asked to give. Now, in terms of the second key, giving requires asking. The more specific you are, the more believable you are. What I mean by that is people recognize that if you're being general in your your appeal, they probably trust you with it. But if, if you're more specific, like there's one organization that I work with, that they do a series of banquets every year. And they look back and they say, okay, of all the funds that we received and spent last year versus the number of people who profess Christ, what was the cost of each one of those decisions? And they come down to the penny. And it's amazing how people respond to that because they can say for every $25.32 or $28.16, whatever it is, people know that there's a greater degree of credibility because they're more specific. So the more specific you are, the more believable you are. The third key is there's a need to ask often. I don't know about you, but I can look back at my life, which is getting longer and longer every day. And we won't even go there. Um, You know, there have been very few times that people have just walked up to me on the street and said, here, Andy, here's a $100 bill. Maybe your situation has been different. You know, it's happened to me twice that I can remember. Uh, And it wasn't, one was tickets and one was something else. But, you know, there was a situation where it was obviously a very unique situation. Most of the time when people give me something, it's because I've asked them for that, whether it's a service or finances or, or whatever. Many of you, as if, especially if you're not in the mission field yet or in full-time vocational uh, work, <coughs> you've built up deferred gifts. I'm not talking about the legalese of gifts that come at someone's uh, death, 
but rather deferred gifts in terms of you've invested your life, you've invested your time in people's lives, you've ministered to them, and they're looking for ways to give back to you. So you have these deferred gifts, and when you ask, it gives people an opportunity to respond. Secondly, you have to be concerned about the frequency of the ask. This is really important uh, because as I, if I've talked to people who give, whether they give $100 a month or $500,000 a year, it always comes back to what is the relationship they have with the person who's doing the asking. The example that I have here is, let's say I see my, gym, my, my friend Jim, and uh, I see him at least once a week, and probably a couple times a month we'll go out and we'll have lunch, and uh, we have a friendship, a relationship. Once a, once a year I'll say to my friend, you know, Jim, I'm involved with this ministry, tell him about the evangelical development ministry, tell him what our future plans are, what our goals are, what God's called us to do, and ask him to become a financial partner. Jim, being the, the generous person that he is, says sure, and he makes a gift. We continue our relationship, seeing each other on a weekly basis, going out a couple times a month for, for lunch and things like that. Comes around another year, and I ask him if he'd give again. And that happens year in and year out. What's Jim's perception of me? All right, that's the frequency that he asks. But the perception is probably we're friends because we have other in, you know, forms of communication, interaction, things like that. On the other hand, I see my friend Ted once a year. I come to Louisville to do a conference, and I say, hey, Ted, how about going out and having lunch? So sure, we go out, we have lunch, tell him about the conference, tell him about what's going on, and then he doesn't hear from me for a year. And I call him up and say, hey, Ted, I'm coming back to Louisville. Let's have lunch. Tell him about the ministry, asking him to make a gift. He makes another gift. Doesn't hear anything from me from the, for the year. Comes back the third year. Hey, Ted, I'm coming. Now, what's Ted's perception of me? He only hears from me when I want to ask him for money, right? But the frequency of the yes is exactly the same. I ask Jim one time a year. I ask Ted one time a year. But the perception is a much different relationship. And one of the, the great joys that we have with the technology that we have is it's easy to communicate with people, whether it's, you know, letters, emails, text, all those different kinds of things. But you have to be careful about the frequency of the ask, that it's not the sole relationship that you have with them. And then C, you need to ask for many causes and opportunities that you have. If people give to you for a specific reason, that's not going to be the totality they're giving. That's one of the biggest uh, fallacies that ministries fall into that, you know, well, our major donors, they, they give all their money to us. Well, I got news for them. I see lists of many different organizations, and I see many of the same names on many of the, the same lists. You know, people have different needs and burdens that God's put on their life, and if they can't uh, fulfill that through your organization, through your ministry, they're going to find other places to give. It's not that they won't give. They'll find other places to give. So the more causes and opportunities that you can share with them from your life experience, from your ministry, the greater their level of commitment will be to you. Okay? 
And then ask for increased commitment and participation. They've done a lot of studies, you know, over the years, and especially those that are probably in some of the younger generations in the audience here, they're, they're giving where they're involved, where they participate. You talk about, say, my generation or, or, or especially my parents' generation. You know, my parents' generation gave because it was the right thing to do. And they didn't have to, to have a reason to give. It was just something that was expected of them to give. But as you look at the different generations now, more and more people are giving where they have a commitment to the organization and they participate with the organization. So never shrink back from give, asking them to participate uh, with you beyond just the financial uh, involvement. Now, what are some barriers to our asking? Because we all face these barriers. One is a fear of rejection. We're afraid that they're going to reject what it is we're asking them to do. And that doesn't feel good. So we, we ask in a very non-threatening way. We'll put a, a need out there and a letter or an email or something and hope somebody reads it and responds. And if they didn't, you know, well, maybe it didn't go, the email didn't go through. You know, the dog ate the letter when it came. You know, it got lost in the mail, all those different kinds of things. So we ask in very non-threatening ways. But that's hard for people to understand what it is you're asking me to do. Secondly, we feel intimidated. You know, I've been raising funds probably for longer than at least half this audience has been alive. Uh, I won't tell you the year, because, but let's put it this way. It's over 35 years. You know, I've never had anybody say, please don't ask me. <laughs> Woke some of you up, didn't I? <laughs> now, I've had some people say no, but... You know, most people don't respond in a negative way, so we shouldn't feel intimidated, especially if we know that we're going to fellow believers. Because, again, the Bible tells us that the Spirit doesn't war against himself. So we shouldn't feel intimidated. The, the number, really, the number one reason is we don't know how to challenge people properly. And this is really important that we challenge them in a way that they're responding to the timing of the gift not a value judgment about you or the organization that you serve. What I mean by that is, if you say, you know, would you please send me a one-time gift of $100? Well, you have two problems with that ask. One, if they say no, you've really shut the door to future. If they do, then you have no legitimate right to go back and ask them, because you're asking for a one-time gift. They gave you a one-time gift. So what are you going to go back and ask them for another one-time gift? Okay. So you either ask for special gifts, which leaves the door open, and you ask about the timing of the gift. You know, maybe it's not the right time. So you say, would you consider making a gift of $100 a month at this time? So if they say no, that leaves the door open to go back and ask them at a later time, because maybe the timing is different. I found over the years that different people have different giving patterns. Some people like to give at the end of the year. Uh, I know one couple, they do all their giving in the first two months of the year so they can have the rest of the year off and not be worried about uh, their giving. 
because they know approximately how much they're going to get. They get their, their distributions, and that's when they do their giving. So we have to understand the timing of the gift many times is what constitutes whether a person says yes or no. Next, people give primarily for emotional reasons, but they justify their giving with logic. Now, what I'm not talking about here is emotionalism. We don't play on people's emotions. But God did create us as emotional beings. The rich young ruler went to Jesus, said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, go and sell all that you have. What does the Bible say his response was? He went away sad. There was an emotional response. That's the way God's created us. And if there's no emotion in the appeal that they can justify with logic, many times the answer is going to be no. But again, I'm not talking about emotionalism, but I'm talking about giving them a reason to want to give. People like to give for future plans. The past only gives credibility. If you've ever heard an advertisement for financial investments, you always hear something, the disclaimer says, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future returns or something to that effect. Well, that's kind of the way people view their giving. They may look at your organization and say, look at what God has done through this organization or look at what God has done through this person. That's going to give you credibility, but it's not going to motivate future gifts. What motivates future gifts and large future gifts are future plans. What are you going to spend the money on? What are your anticipated returns? What are the results that you think God is going to give as a result of the investments that I make? Therefore, we need to plan. You need to have a one-year plan, a three-year plan, a five-year plan. Not something that's going to be static and hem you in, but rather a dynamic plan that will change as the situations and the uh, environment changes around you. As I mentioned, the past gives credibility, but doesn't motivate current gifts. Next, people like to give what they're expected to give. I've had people tell me that the, the worst thing they hate is when somebody says, well, would you become a part of the ministry and would you give without giving them any range or an amount to, to prayerfully consider? They don't know how to respond at that point in time. People want to meet your expectations. And therefore, we need to not be shy about sharing what those expectations are. Now, again, I mentioned a range. If you don't know an amount to ask a person for, at least give them a a reasonable range. Don't tell them, uh, you know, $3,000, $1,000, or $50. That's an unreasonable range. But $150, $100, or $50 a month is a reasonable range. People like to give. Now, some people will say, well, what if the person can't give one of those amounts? They'll probably say, you know, I'd really like to be a part, but I can't. Well, then you you respond by, is an amount you could give? And then they'll tell you what the amount is that God has laid on their their heart. Whatever you can do is a recipe for failure. Because people don't know what your expectations are. They don't know how to respond to that. 
I was talking to a guy one time who was raising support, and uh, he gave me a great presentation and got down to the ask and said, so, uh, would you like to be a part? And I said, well, yeah, I think so, but, you know, I'm not sure what your expectations are. He said, I I don't know what you mean. And I said, well, you have people who are already supporting you, right? He said, yes. And I said, so so what do they give? He goes, well, you know, I've got some people who give $1,000 a month and some people who give $5 a month. Just jump in wherever you feel comfortable. Uh, My response was, you know, this is not a swimming pool. I'm not going to jump in where I feel comfortable. Give me some idea of what my gift could accomplish, what's reasonable. When people are asked to give less than they're able to, generally they're embarrassed. I've had major donors tell me that, you know, when somebody comes and they're thinking the person is going to ask them for $100,000 and they ask them for $50, they're embarrassed because they think, you know, is that all this person thinks that I, I could give or would be willing to give? So you need to kind of do some research, if at all possible. And everything that's online these days, you can, you know, give research to. I took an individual to see a major donor. He runs a a drilling company as one of his companies. I told my friend Stephen, I said, look online, look up his drilling company. He even surprised me when he came back and said, they have 17 rigs operating. Now, for those of you that aren't in oil and gas, That doesn't mean anything to you. But each rig is about a $5 million investment. So to have 17 rigs operating at any one point in time, you're talking about $85 million being involved in in every one of those those, uh, drilling things. So there's, uh, there's capacity there. When people are asked to give more than they're able to, they're generally flattered because they think, you have a higher degree and understanding of what I might be able to give. And they'll stretch to try to make your giving uh, expectation, as long as it's within reason. Uh, we were talking to a, a head of an organization one time. And we had a meeting set up for him to go and talk to a foundation. We said, now, look, this is what typically the first gift amount is. This is what you ought to ask for. He went in and got so excited about what he was sharing, he asked for more than what the total assets of the foundation were. (laughs) The directors were not flattered, and they did not give him anything. The fourth key step is that referrals are very important. In in the United States, people tend to live and, and stay in the same social economic strata. I was involved in a situation one time where we were talking to a major donor about a $3 million project. And he said, well, I'll commit to a half a million dollars of that. And he said, and I'll call so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And he ran name up to about five people. And he said, call me back in three days and we'll probably have all the money committed. Called him back in three days. He had called five of his other friends. They each gave a half a million dollars like he did and the entire project was underwritten. You know, now, is that unusual? Yes, in terms of the amount, but not the principle. People will share their giving with, with you and share their, their relationships as long as you're treating them ac- accordingly. So you always need to be developing qualified leads that can be seen personally under favorable conditions. 
if you're going to achieve superior results, prospecting has to become as natural as breathing. Again, it's not something you start and stop. It's something you do on a regular, ongoing basis. And the way you do it is by suggesting categories, such as, well, Dr. Jones, are there two or three other physicians that work with you down at the hospital that would share our same desire for, or Mr. Mr. Smith, as an attorney, are there two or three other attorneys that you work with, say, down at the courthouse or maybe in your firm that would share our desire? Or, you know, Aunt Betty, are there two or three other people who sing with you in the choir who would share our same desire? So we suggest categories. Because if you say, is there anybody that you know who would be interested? It's like overload, and they're going to say, no, I can't think of anybody. And you know that they have friends. You know they have relationships. So suggest categories. Secondly is asking referrals by using a directory. Maybe you find out. Maybe they're part of Rotary or they're part of, you know, Women's uh, Prayer Club or Women's Club or, or Men's Bible Study or whatever. Typically, they'll have a directory of that club. <coughs> so you could ask them, if you have a directory of the club that you're associated with, would you mind taking that up and maybe scanning it? See if there's somebody that God brings to mind that would share our same interest and desire. Or you can ask for referrals using a pre-compiled list. What I mean by that is, over time, people will say, well, you know, you ought to contact so-and-so. I think he or she might be interested. But you don't have any in, uh, introduction there. So you begin putting these names on a list that you compile. When you're with people saying, here are a couple names here in the area. Would you happen to know any of these people, and would you be willing to introduce me to them? That's using a pre-compiled list. I had an organization come to me one day, and they said, you know, we've put together this list of people that we think might be interested in. This happened to be a, a Christian school, and they were going to be doing a, a building project. And as I looked over those the list of names, it wasn't extensive. It's probably less than ten. <clears throat> I noticed that there was one name on there, and that was the same name as the soccer coach of my oldest son. I said, well, you know, I might know this person. And so next time we had soccer practice, I said to Leonard, <clears throat> you know, I was with this group the other day, and they were showing me this list. And they said, uh, there's, there's a Leonard Robinson who's part of this foundation. And I didn't even finish the sentence. He goes, yeah, that's me. Talk to me later. And I knew from time to time, as a CPA, he would be gone to meetings, but I never knew exactly what he was going to these, this foundation board meetings on a quarterly basis. And so I talked to him. I said, would you be willing to open the door to have a meeting? He set up a meeting with the, the head, head of the foundation. <coughs> and this organization got a gift. All because they gave me a pre-compiled list and I was able to use my relationship to get an appointment. You have to understand that prospecting is the lifeblood of ministry. There are people that are going to be called home. There are people that are going to be, have other interests that come up. And if you don't have new names coming on to your list all the time, you're going to find out that, oops, I'm, I'm out of contacts. My support's going down. I don't know what to do. You know, because you don't make it a process. You make it an event. 
So you want to contact people with the ability and capacity to give, but also a desire. Just because a person has money doesn't mean that they're going to give it away. So you have to find out that they have the capacity and the ability, but also the desire to give. Uh, I think this is on your your outline, but a good prospector with a well-organized active reservoir building file will have hard work to find enough time to contact everybody to work with them out of all the prospects that they have. To me, that's the ideal situation to be in, always having more contacts to make than I have time to, to make them. And in times like these, these economic times, the messenger is more important than ever. So use a third-party endorsement to increase givers' confidence and excitement about your ministry. They can say things about you and your ministry that you can't or shouldn't say about yourself, but it's very helpful to have that third-party endorsement. And then number five, the basis for successful long-term ministry partnership development is love. If you're just seeing people who give to your organization as dollar signs, they won't be with you very long. But if you view them as a relationship that God has started and an opportunity you have to minister to them, that's why I said in the very beginning, this is not something we do to have a ministry, but it is a ministry. And love is what motivates us to meet needs that they have. Then they will be responsive and be a partner over the long term. Love determines not only how quickly you raise your initial support, if you're just getting into vocational ministry, but also tells us how well you maintain your support. Because when people feel loved and accepted and a partner in what you're doing, they will be involved in it over the long term. Now, the most fundamental step in ministry partnership development is a thank you communication, a thank you letter, a thank you note, or email. Not a text. Okay? And what I've found over the last several years, and this has been verified through different sources, yes, people will appreciate receiving an email saying thank you. But when they get a note or a letter, that says even more to them than any email or text or anything else like that. Because it's a, it shows your time being taken to thank them for the gift that they've made. And it really is the most fundamental step. You really want to avoid ingratitude by not, if you don't thank people, they're going to think you're not grateful. And therefore, they'll probably not be as responsive in the future. So you want to avoid ingratitude. Now, what is effective ministry partnership development? This is on your outline. But it's a presentation of the right cause to the right prospect by the right person asking for the right amount at the right time in the right way. Now, we can break all that down. But basically, you know, what is your cause? Do you know what your cause is? Are you going to the right prospect, those people that would have the burden, the interest, the desire to give to that cause? Who's the best person to do the ask? My example of the one man who committed half a million dollars and got five friends, I could not have gotten the half a million from the five friends. I wasn't the right person to do the ask. But my friend was because he had the relationship with them. Asking for the right amount 
at the right time in the right way. So as you raise funds, you need to be asking yourself these three questions. Am I asking at the right time? Am I asking for the right amount? You know, if a church can provide as much as 25% of your support, why would you only ask for 10%? Or if an individual is capable of giving $500, why would you only ask for 50 Asking for less is not more spiritual than asking for more. Sometimes we may feel more comfortable asking for less, but that's because we don't understand God's economy, that if that person sees themselves as a vessel to be a steward over what God's entrusted to them, God is going to give them the ability to fulfill their, their stewardship responsibilities. So answering these three questions can allow you to raise funds much faster and even build a greater bond between you and your ministry partners. Now, the sixth step is seeing individuals in person. When you're seeing a person in, in a face-to-face meeting, you always want to report on the ministry results. You need to be letting them know what is God doing through what you're, what you're doing. Tell stories of changed lives. One story about an individual whose life has been changed is worth ten times all the statistics you can share with the person. The number one uh, magazine is still Reader's Digest because it tells real stories about real people, and people like to read that. So always be sure that your communication, whether it's face-to-face or written communications, tells stories of changed lives. Show an interest in them. Ask questions. Find out what's weighing on their heart. Pray for them. Let them know that you're concerned and, you're, that you, and you follow up. You know, when you're with them the next time, how is your daughter? You know, did she have the baby last week like she was supposed to have or, or whatever? I used to, when I, when I first got involved in raising funds, I used to take three-by-five cards and keep them in my pocket. And I try to remember everything from a face-to-face meeting or a phone call. And then when I got done, I'd race to the car or whatever, and I'd start writing down all these things on my 3 by 5 card so I didn't forget, and I could use them as, as prayer cards. One day I was sitting in a, in a man's office, and he started telling me some things, and without ever thinking, I just reached in and took out my cards and started writing down. And he said, Andy, what are you doing? You know that feeling like when your hand's caught in a cookie jar? <laughs> It was like, oh, no, what am I doing? And I'm not supposed to do this until I get to the car. And I said, well, Fred, I just didn't want to forget what you were sharing with me so that my wife and I could pray about it. And these tears started running down his cheeks. He said, thank you so much for caring. So I, I take out my cards now and write things down all the, all the time. <laughs> you know? and, then, and then we pray for them, which is, which is D. Now, in terms of developing your partner, look at it as a process. It's a discipleship process. Just like you would disciple somebody in the field or on your team or in the office or whatever, realize that you're developing a relationship. In terms of developing, it could be on the appointment itself. Be friendly, be cordial, be open and honest and yet transparent but professional. Uh, I had a meeting set up with an individual who happened to be the CEO of of a company back in, in Philadelphia, <clears throat> pardon me, and uh, he told me I could have 15 minutes of his time. 
So I put together a presentation in my mind. It would take 15 minutes. And at the end of the 15 minutes, I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And I started to get up. And his office was about three-quarters of the size of this room. And he had this great big leather back, high back chair. And he, he fell back in his chair and his arms went up in the air. You would have thought I just pulled a gun on the guy. And he said, what, what? And I said, well, you told me I could have 15 minutes. I know you're very busy. I don't want to take any more time than you said I could have. And all of a sudden he realized this hand was up in the air. Didn't realize this one was up there. He goes, well, uh, have you had lunch yet? And I said, no, I was waiting until after our, our meeting. He says, uh, well, that door over there, that's, that's my private restroom. If you'd like to go wash up, I'd be happy to take you to lunch. And he put that hand down. I went in the restroom. This hand was still in the air. I don't know when it, when it, when it ever came down. So I came back out, and, and we went, and we had lunch. Spent another hour with him. This is a man who said I could have 15 minutes. And then it was amazing. Every time I'd go back to his, his business, people would run. They'd open doors. The guy at the, the parking lot would salute me. And, you know, it was, it was ridiculous. And uh, so I had gotten to know his administrative assistant, and I said, Ruth, you know, the corporate culture around here is just incredible when it comes to, you know, the interaction to customers and things like that. And she started to laugh. She said, well, I'd like to tell you we do that to everybody. She said, but do you remember that first time you were here and you went and you had lunch with Phil? And I said, yeah. She said, well, you kind of know he's got four grown sons and two daughters. And I said, yeah. And she said, you know, all of them about your height and your build and he said, what you don't know is the only people he ever has lunch with here are his children. She said, I'm sure that they think you, you're one of, his, one of his kids. So, <laughs> you know, it ne- never hurts. When you're on the appointment, you want to establish rapport. Find out what's going on in their life, what's important to them. Give them a clear statement of purpose why you're there. I was with one organization. They got a phone call one day from a foundation. And uh, this foundation executive said, you know, uh, one of your staff comes by. We really like him. He's a nice guy. He's been coming by for a couple of years now. Can you tell us why he comes by? Now, you, you stop and think. This guy is head of a foundation. They give money away. This is a ministry representative. Put two and two together. But the guy never gave a, steer, a clear purpose, a statement of purpose of why he was there in terms of getting this person involved in, in the ministry. And then you want to discuss tentative benefits. These are not the benefits that you think that are important. It's what is important to the the giver. And then talk about pertinent areas of interest and concerns. But you have to be sensitive there because the time can vary greatly. If If you're told you have 15 minutes, don't plan on spending 45 minutes. You can stay if you're asked to stay longer. But, you know, realize why the person is telling you that. And then ask probing questions. People will tell you more about themselves than you'll ever think about asking them. I had a guy call me one day. He says, guess what I just did? I said, I don't know. He said, no, go ahead. Guess what I just did? I said, I have no idea what you just did. I mean, this guy was an entrepreneur. He says, I just bought 10 goats. Well, that would have been probably, you know, 1,596 on my list of things that I would have guessed if I started (laughs) guessing. He said, guess what I paid for them? Now, I never would have asked this guy what he paid for these 10 goats. I figured, well, it must be outrageous. So I said, $10,000. He goes, yeah, each. Okay. See me later. I'll tell you the rest of that story. But 
you know, you ask probing questions, they'll tell you about things about themselves, what's important to them. Then you relate those interests to the gospel or what it is God's called you to do. And above all, be friendly. Now, the presentation that you make is where a lot of education and motivation takes place. And that's the two main elements of a successful presentation. Education increases their knowledge. Motivation increases their excitement and their vision. Give a brief testimony. Share your specific involvement in the ministry. Storytell. Tell stories. People like to hear stories. It keeps them interested and engaged in what you're doing. And then check for understanding. Do they understand what it is you're called to do and what's taking place as a result of what you're, you're called to do? And then when you go to ask, summarize the benefits. Again, the benefits to the individual, not to you. Share the concept of partnership. That this is not you give and lose, but it's a win-win. Share your specific financial needs or opportunities. Um, Ask for a particular dollar amount. You know, if you get a referral and that referral is giving you, say, $100 a month, you can feel fairly confident you could ask for $100 a month from the individual that you're talking to, and they could be responsive. Ask in the right way, as we talked about earlier, about the timing of the gift. Never allow a person to say no to you personally, but always to the, to the timing of the gift. And then once you ask, be quiet, let the person respond. And then conclude the appointment with a review of the contribution process, the fact that you're developing a prayer team, and that you're asking for referrals. Now, in conclusion, be a friend raiser, not a fundraiser. A fundraiser says, give me your money so I can go do my ministry. A friend raiser says, will you become a partner and together we will accomplish X, Y, Z. Give your best of the work to the master. Don't make partnership development something you do if you have time. Build it into your, your calendar, otherwise it won't get done. And then realize, according to the Apostle Paul, that raising money is, doing something to, is not doing something to someone, but rather it's doing something for someone as laid out in 2 Corinthians 9, 8 to 14. And those are all listed on your, on your outline there. As you can see as you go through those, there's probably not one of those that you would not want to be a, a part of. So, pardon me for the water hose, but it's all you can do in, in the short time that we had. Be happy to answer any questions, but I know we have to end. To end, and then you know, let me take one question. Yes. One, one of the things could be you could, you could talk to ECFA. Um, you could probably talk to the leadership here at this conference. I, I could have, have you in that direction because there's some umbrella organizations that you might be able to work through. You could set up your own, but that's a fairly difficult, expensive task, especially if you go through an attorney or something like that. Okay, be happy to answer any other questions if you want to come up here afterwards. Again, if you want additional information, sign up on those sheets in the back. And thank you all for coming.